We are now recording. Cool. So, um, yeah. So today's topic is um, how science shows there is a God. And um, we're going to split it up into three different um, subtopics. And uh, so the first one I was thinking we would talk about um, the question, did the universe just happen? And I know that's kind of a big big question. Um, but some people that I've talked to um, kind of put it, kind of phrased it, did how can something come from nothing? Um, so to somebody who I guess has no answer to uh, if the universe just happened, where would you start to explain? Well, oh, first of all, um, what we're talking about here is uh, known as the cosmological argument. Okay. And the cosmological argument, uh, the premise is something like this. Um, basically, anything that exists was caused. The universe exists, therefore it was caused. Mm -hmm. uh, William Lake Craig gave a more subtle or sophisticated version of the cosmological argument. It's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And his argument was this. Anything that begins to exist is caused. Okay. The universe began to exist, therefore it is caused. That cause is God. The reason uh, William Lane Craig came up with that is because there are things that arguably exist that weren't caused. For example, the number three arguably exists uh, you know, huh, yeah. as a thing in and of itself. Now, that's a philosophical debate. I think the average listener is not going to worry too much about that debate, but the number pi, certain things you could argue would exist uh, whether or not the universe exists. Yeah. So that's why William Lane Craig came up with a, a probably a little bit more airtight argument, which is that anything which begins to exist was caused. And, and I don't think there are any exceptions to that. And people can try to come up with some. People have tried. I haven't seen one. And we know from scientific evidence, or at least we think we know from scientific evidence, that the universe did begin to exist. Uh -huh. So therefore, it was caused. And what would be that cause? Well, almost by definition, that cause is God, some sort of God, arguably maybe not the God of the Bible. It could be maybe the Hindu God or something like that. Uh -huh. So um, going from this point of causation, when the universe was caused, what... Um, are some ideas around how the universe was caused? Well, first of all, being. you should understand that uh, well into the 20th century, almost all physicists held to the proposition that the universe had always existed, called the steady state. Well, a version of the steady state theory, if you will. Okay. And the reason they held to that idea was not because the universe appears to be eternal, but because the alternative was hard for atheism. In other words, there's really only two possibilities. The universe has either always existed mm -hmm. or it it hasn't. Yeah. And if it has not always existed, then it was created, and that automatically raises questions about its creation and how that creation happened. So to avoid that, scientists committed to the idea that the universe was eternal, that it always existed. Now, uh, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, 
if that's true, then the second law of thermodynamics says the universe should already be very, very, very cold. So you know, they came up with these cyclic universe ideas and things like that and the expansion and contraction and all that. But the bottom line is, in the 1930s, evidence emerged that the universe is expanding very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. It's that, that, uh, that red shift. The, and when the train is going away from you, you hear a lower frequency. And the light from very distant objects okay, appears yeah. to be at a lower frequency. So very distant objects are receding. Bottom line is that proved the universe was expanding. Okay. Now, atheists wanted to save the eternal universe idea, so they came up with what's now known as the steady state model, which says, believe it or not, they proposed, although the universe is always expanding, new matter is always being created at a rate, so the density of the universe remains constant. So new matter is always just generated? Out of nothing, despite the fact that there was no evidence for this matter being generated. When did that when did that idea come about? That came about in the forties and fifties. Wow. And it was it's one of the most obvious examples in the history of science of what we could call an ad hoc theory. In other words, a theory created not because of evidence, but because of an idea that is causing you to create that theory. But anyway, uh, in the nineteen sixties, accidentally uh, uh, microwave background radiation was discovered. Uh, it, it, there's a great story there, but uh, so as early as the 30s, models to describe this creation event that's called the Big Bang model started to make predictions about the, what the universe should look like. And one prediction of that model is there should exist a very low frequency uh, radiation that pervades the entire universe in fact, it even predicted roughly what the wavelength would be. That's from the Big Bang model. And so these uh, uh, microwave antenna research people in New Jersey just accidentally picked up the signal. And it turned out uh, they got the Nobel Prize, even though it was a total accident, because they discovered this background radiation that fills the universe. At this point, the steady state model is completely untenable. So because of that background radiation, they, the steady state model can't... It, it can't work. So by the end of the 60s, only some really old people who were just so stubborn they would not change their mind, probably, most likely, every single one of them were highly committed to an atheist worldview. Those are the only ones left that believed in this model. So now, <clears throat> science as a whole, with essentially no dissenting views, agrees the universe is created... Uh, the numbers show roughly 13 and a half billion years ago, the universe was created before this event, which was not an explosion, by the way. An explosion would be stuff exploding. Mm -hmm. There was nothing. So uh, roughly 13.5 billion years ago, uh, there was nothing. And then it's, at one instant, in a brilliant flash of light, reminiscent of Genesis 1-1, uh, all the matter, energy, in uh, the universe were created. Not only that, but even time itself was created, and even space itself was created. So according to the theory, before this event, there was literally not even space or time, never mind matter. And this is talking about the Big Bang Theory? Right. And so physicists are unanimous in this. The universe was created out of nothing at an instant, wow. which is what the Bible said all along. Wait, so you said it came from, not an explosion, but it actually came from light? Well, right. The, the, the moment of creation 
was a was light. Really? Right. Which is interesting since Genesis one one has God saying, "Let there be light." Whoa. And and then what happened is the, the photons collide to make matter. It's a very complicated, and I could explain some if you like. Yeah, yeah. At some point, uh, I'll be over, you know beyond my uh, my expertise. But so as this matter expanded, it cools. Any gas that expands cools. So as it cooled, eventually things like electrons started to form and quarks. And then as it cooled even more, quarks condensed to form protons and neutrons. And as it cooled even more, eventually even electrons began to attach to nu nuclei and you had atoms. Uh, theorized roughly 100,000 years after the universe was formed, that happened. At that point, the universe became transparent to light. And at that point, the, micro the radiation began to pervade the universe. That as the universe cools, that, that the wavelength of this radiation gets longer and longer and longer in proportion to how the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. That's the Big Bang model. The fact that that agrees uh, in detail with what the Bible said all along is, that's to say the least, interesting. Okay. So the steady state theory, we talked about that and how it's pretty unreliable. If you're going to put that into, in, in bullet points, why... Why would you say that the study? It's not unreliable. It's it's wrong. Oh, okay. Okay, because uh, the base the way science works is uh, scientists produce theories that are consistent with data or evidence. Mm -hmm. So data comes out, which is the universe is expanding. Scientists for a while had two competing theories, both of which were consistent with that evidence, which was the Big Bang model and the steady state model. Mm -hmm. Then, when the cosmic microwave background radiation was discovered in like 63, 64, then one of those two models was, was simply not consistent with the data at all. So good science says that theory is wrong. Now, the fact that the Big Bang model is consistent with all the evidence doesn't prove it's true. All it's, it does all you can ever do in science, which is say this theory is in agreement with the data. Hmm. So therefore, you... Like I say to my Science 110, uh, my Intro to Scientific Thought class, uh, I say, uh, does this mean the Big Bang happened? They've been trained by now. They say, no, it doesn't mean it happened. What does it mean? It means it's consistent with the data, so it's a good theory. Gotcha. And uh, arguments about evolution come down to uh, this kind of, you know, what, is it true or, is, you know, that kind of thing. We'll, we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so are those the only two theories or, or the steady state theory, I guess, is no longer a theory of... Right. Right now, there's only one theory of origin of the universe. Now, that's debatable. Let me qualify that a minute. But I would say, uh, as far as the universe we're part of, mm -hmm. okay, the only theory that is even mentioned in scientific circles uh, in any significant way is that this creation out of nothing is the source of the universe that we experience. Wow. There used to be this expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, you know, thing, but but that just doesn't fit the data. Gotcha. Okay. But the, here's the point. The point is not, because uh, I'm not sure that the listeners care that much about uh, the Big Bang model per se. The point is this. The universe was created. And the cosmological argument, which seems inescapable, it seems to me anyway, 
says that means there's a creator of some sort. Yeah. Whether that's a personal God or some sort of unknown force or entity is not determined by the scientific evidence. It does seem to rule out the Hindu God, the, or the, the, the idea of the Hindu God, because Hinduism very strongly is committed to the idea that the universe is eternal mm -hmm. and that you know, there's these cycles of creation and destruction. That Vishnu destroys and and Shiva, no, Shiva destroys and Vishnu creates and Krishna, uh, I'm sorry, and um, Brahman sustains. This this model of the, of the eternal universe model, which is required of pantheism, just it's not true. It's just mm. not true. And therefore, the cosmology of Hinduism is flat out not true. So going back to our original question of did the universe just happen, the the, the only conclusion that we can come to is that no, it didn't just happen. It was created. Right. That, that was, when I put that in my book, uh, Is There a God? That was intended kind of as a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. And arguably even a, maybe even a slightly sarcastic hmm. a rhetorical question because obviously it didn't just happen. Yeah. But the atheist essentially seems to be forced to believe that it literally just happened. <laughs> now, uh, it's worth mentioning the multiverse theory. So... <clears throat> This is like beyond. I I've heard people try to talk about this, and it's like beyond. Well, again, the multiverse theory is what I'd call an, an example of an ad hoc hypothesis. Now, a good scientific theory generally is created because you have some data, some evidence you're trying to explain. Yeah, yeah. And you create the theory to explain the evidence. But an ad hoc theory is something which you're creating not because of the evidence, but because of some assumption you're bringing to the table. So. But this relates to another aspect of the of the whole Big Bang thing, and that's the idea of the, the finely tuned universe, uh, because it turns out there are a number of constants that, that that define sort of the workings of the universe, which are tuned to uh, just an absolutely ridiculous level of precision, mm -hmm. so that arguing luck or accident or coincidence is seems irrational. Uh, for example. <clears throat> Uh, the force of gravity, that's one of the four fundamental forces of the universe. Yeah. The force of gravity obviously is essential to the existence of galaxies and stars because as the matter expands, what causes it to contract and form you know, separate objects that exist, like a star and, or a galaxy or a planet? And the answer, of course, is the force of gravity is what causes that. Well... As those who began to kind of work out the details of the Big Bang model found out to their shock, if the force of gravity that exists was smaller by one part in 10 to the 60th, in other words, 59 zeros and then a 1, if it had been smaller by that ridiculously small proportion, uh, matter would have never clumped and galaxies would have never formed. Wow. On the other hand, if that force had been bigger than it is by a similarly mind-bogglingly, ununderstandably small, 59 zeros and one, then the universe would have collapsed almost as soon as it was created. So the force of gravity has a value precise to one part in 10 to the 60th. That's equivalent to, uh, say, winning the, the super lotto six times in a row. Okay. Which, and this is at the point of the Big Bang, when it, if, if, if this... Well, just... The universe has this property. This it just has this property, it, right? And if it was a good question is why does gravity even exist? The atheist has literally no conceivable explanation to even why it exists. 
never mind why it's so precise. Yeah. But anyway, it turns out there are dozens, literally there are dozens of parameters that define how the universe works, such as the size of the nuclear strong force, the size of the nuclear weaker force, the amount of positive charged particles balanced with the number of negatively charged particles. That's a really cool one. Because it turns out, according to the Big Bang model, which, of course, is not proved, but yeah, yeah. according to the Big Bang model, electrons were created through a different process and a different time than protons were. So there's no obvious reason why electrons and protons would have an equal amount. But they have an equal amount to something like 1 part in 10 to the 30th. And if they didn't, then the electrical force would dominate the universe instead of gravity, in which case none of this would work. So, he, so here's the problem then. How do you explain the seemingly you know, ununderstandable level of coincidence, if you will, mm -hmm. that our universe happens to have these properties that are just right for life to exist? And the response of the atheist is to say, well, there's an infinite number of universes, and we just live in the right one. We just got lucky. Hmm. Well, almost by definition, that is not a scientific theory. Yeah. Because all scientific theories must be both testable by experiment and refutable by experiment. And that hypothesis is neither testable by any conceivable experiment, nor is it disprovable by any conceivable experiment. I'd say it was created not because of evidence, but because people were trying to save the presupposition of atheism. So with... You're, you're talking about some of these different coincidences or some of these different fine-tunings that show that the universe just can't be a coincidence, that it kind of shows that there is some sort of intelligent design behind it. And you mentioned uh, the electron and the proton. Right. And, uh, and gravity. What are, and you mentioned a few other ones, but what, what are some of those other, just for the listener that, I mean, I find those really interesting. All right. Um, a number of them are too technical to, to probably be worth putting out there. But yeah. uh, there are, the four forces are the, the um, electromagnetic force, like the attractive force between protons and electrons. That's the force that, that holds the electrons on the atoms. That one is finely tuned to a very, very small percentage. Uh, another force is the nuclear strong force. And that's what attracts the protons to the neutrons. Uh -huh. Otherwise, you'd have no nucleus because the protons naturally repel each other. Mm -hmm. So what holds the, the nucleus together? The answer is the neutrons and this nuclear strong force, which most people don't even learn about in any college course because it's kind of, you know, we get to advanced particle physics. But anyway, it turns out that force is tuned not to some crazy one part in 10 to the 60th. It's tuned to plus or minus about 5%. So in other words, if that force was 5% larger, there'd be no hydrogen, in which case we wouldn't have stars. You know. Yeah. If it was 5% weaker, we'd have only hydrogen, in which case, well, obviously we wouldn't have life. So that's another parameter that's tuned. Uh, another parameter is called the nuclear weak force, and that's the force that holds uh, uh, the, the neutron together, essentially. Mm. It, it holds the electron and the proton together to form a, a neutron. And that one is also fine-tuned, not, again, not to one part in a billion or a trillion or a quadrillion. It's tuned to like a plus or minus a few percent. If it went in either direction, you'd have either too many neutrons or too many protons. And uh, the universe 
that supports life just simply wouldn't exist. So all these fine, all these different fine tunings. Has anybody calculated the chances of it happening? Yeah. What What is the? Well, f for example, let's just take two of those numbers, which is the 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 probability of having gravity, the force of gravity, have the right size, yeah. and the probability of having uh, the the amount of uh, protons and electrons be balanced. Those two together have been calculated to be one part in ten to the one hundredth. That, to give you a feeling of how insanely improbable that is, uh, it turns out that it, it's been estimated that our entire universe, with hundreds of billions of galaxies, each of which have hundreds of billions of stars, if you took all the particles in the universe, all protons, neutrons, electrons, every particle in the universe, that's around 1 times 10 to the 80th particles. So in other words, you need 10 to the 20th universes to have enough particles and then take all those particles in the 10 to the 20th universes, the probability of picking out one particle in all those things by accident is roughly how likely you would have a universe with the right, num with the right uh, amount of protons and neutrons and the right gravity force. And you know, in mathematics, you know, what's the definition of zero? They, they, they debate the definition mm -hmm. of zero. Some people would say if, if it's less than one, times, one over one times 10 to the 50th, you could say, by definition, it's zero. So if you were playing uh, uh, the, the probability game for the atheist to be right, that uh, you know, we just happen to live in the right universe, uh, that, I wouldn't want to play those odds. I really wouldn't. I'd, I'd say that's not very likely. The way I like to say it is, it takes uh, uh, incredible faith to believe in atheism. I, huh. I just don't know how s atheists who are scientists, I just don't know how they maintain this belief in view of the evidence. Yeah. So all these different things, um, all those different uh, constants that you were talking about yeah. that we find in our universe that to have it, even two of them, you know, in the probability of two of them happening in our universe is so, so small, uh, nearly impossible. Um, what, uh, what was I going to say? What, um, where, where was I going with that question? Um, oh, so all those different, all those different constants, those are absolutely necessary for life. Even right, exist. that's the point. That's exactly that's the, the point. point. Okay. So, in other words, sure, there could be a universe with a different uh, nuclear strong force, but if so, there would be nobody sitting here to observe it. <laughs> you know, it, right? And so, you, you you have to imagine what's the reasonable explanation of the facts that we can observe. And you know, I would say you you can't prove the existence of God in the sense of mathematical proof. All I can say is the most reasonable conclusion from the evidence is that God exists. And I would say given uh, the, the unlikelihood of having a universe that has the right parameters, the, on, the only reasonable conclusion is, number one, there is a creator. Number two, that creator is very, very smart. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're just beginning to talk about the different reasons that there's design. And number three, that creator is uh, very powerful. Because, you know, creating a universe, presumably, that's not just, uh, you don't snap your, well, maybe you do just snap your finger and you have a universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um, I know in your book you talk about, um, like, kind of going on the, uh, 
along with the uh, topic of life, you talk uh, about a few different things, and uh, one chunk of uh, your book talks all about water. So what is what is the um, what's so important about water? Okay, first of all, let me give a word to the topic we're discussing, because it's nice to have the right vocabulary here. So, uh, the, or really, it's a two-word phrase. The phrase is the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle essentially says that the universe has the qualities that are required in order for life to exist. In fact, that explains why the universe has the properties it has. Now, the anthropic principle is not a scientific principle. Okay. It's more of a, of a, I don't know, a, a um, philosophical principle or something like that. So, th the question is, why is the universe the way that it is? Uh -huh. Atheists kind of go, uh, duh, I don't, I don't know, it just, it just is, all right? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, a very good answer. But one possible answer is, well, the reason it is the way it is is because uh, it was created that way so we could be here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the fine-tuning is one aspect of that, but there's so many others. So let me answer your question. So, for example, in order for life to exist, there needs to be some sort of liquid solvent uh, within which different chemicals could move around in order for a living thing to do the things that living things have to do, such as take in food and and turn it into energy and use that energy to reproduce and move and these kind of things. So it, so life requires a, a liquid, but according to uh, scientists, uh, that liquid would have to be, that compound would have to be a liquid somewhere between about minus 20 centigrade and about 80 degrees centigrade. Higher temperature molecules fall apart. Lower temperatures, there's not enough energy for chemical reactions to happen and so a living thing, you know, it, it just couldn't live. I mean, just the, the metabolic reactions would be so slow, it, it, life couldn't exist. So it just so happens that water is liquid almost across that entire temperature range. Hmm. Now, it turns out it's better to have it liquid across almost all that range than all of it, as I'll explain in a minute. So anyway, another property this liquid ha would have to have, it would have to dissolve a very wide range of substances. Uh, one requirement is that this solvent needs to be able to dissolve ionic compounds, so things like sodium ion and chloride ion and potassium ion. Otherwise, you couldn't have a communication system in this living thing. You couldn't have, say, what we call a nervous system, or you know, information couldn't pass from a central information place we call the brain to other parts of this living thing. This is all without water. None of that could happen. Well, it, here's the thing. Water is the only substance that exists in this universe that dissolves ions. No other liquid dissolves ions. None. And that's absolutely necessary. For absolutely necessary. So the, co the only compound that dissolves ions also just so happens to be a liquid in the Goldilocks temperature range. Another property that water has is water absorbs by far more heat than any other substance. Uh, most substances, like, say, rock or plastic or whatever, uh, water absorbs, say, ten times as much heat. Uh, it's at least twice as much heat as all other substances. Okay, you could say, oh, that's nice, great. Well, it turns out if the molecule that absorbs the most heat wasn't also the liquid which creates life, 
then the temperature of the Earth would go up and down by, say, 200 degrees centigrade in any given year, and life would be destroyed. So the coincidence is the same compound that's liquid in the right temperature range is also the same compound that dissolves the widest range of molecules of any other, is also the one that absorbs the most heat. Okay, but then there's another property that water has that literally no other mo molecule has, which is this. Every molecule except water, the solid sinks and the liquid floats. Now, everybody here knows that ice floats on water. Mm -hmm. We take it for granted. But take any substance and just name, name a million different substances. All of them, the solid sinks. It does not float. So, well... If that were not the case, there'd be no life on the Earth. Because in the winter, when it gets really cold, the colder ice floats on top of the warmer water. Ice is an insulator, and it prevents lakes from freezing to the bottom in the winter. Now, you could argue, all right, if, if lakes froze to the bottom, not too big a deal, maybe. But also, during the ice ages, oceans would have frozen to the bottom. And that would create this vicious cycle so that all life would be destroyed. <laughs> now, Whoa. and there's another really cool property, which is uh, all other compounds, as the temperature goes down, the density goes up. Guess how many exceptions there are? Water. Only one, water. Water has this really strange property unique to water that as you cool it off, it gets more dense. But then below 4 degrees centigrade, it goes in the other direction. So, therefore, you have the colder ice on top of the colder water on top of the warmer water. And it creates this temperature inversion, which, again, explains why uh, lakes don't freeze to the bottom and why oceans don't freeze to the bottom during the ice ages. And, um, again, water is the only molecule that has this property. Wow. So, you could say, all right, fine, uh, you know, great, just lucky for us. Uh, no, I say... Not lucky for us. In fact, I would argue to say lucky for us is, that's a bad explanation. I, I don't even think it's reasonable. I'd say God created water, and he understood the properties it would have to have, and he created hydrogen with its properties, oxygen with its properties, so the water molecule exists, so that we could have life. And water has a lot of biblical significance as well on top of all the, the significance of life. Like, I feel like, um, you know, I, I just think of, um, you know, in the beginning when the earth was formless, there was water. And, um, mm -hmm. like, the symbolic uh, aspect of water with, like, renewal and rebirth and stuff. That's like true. That. I'm not sure how that relates to the science of water so much, but there's you know, certain theological questions related to water. Yeah. No, it's just, I just... Yeah, and that's just one of those random thoughts, right? Yeah. It's one awesome. of those random thoughts. <laughs> um, so water is kind of one of those uh, things that has, that's incredibly special and kind of points towards a creator mm -hmm. um, and intelligent design. And also in your book, you talk about some of the different aspects of the different elements. Like I know you mentioned right. carbon, mm -hmm. uh, uranium, uh, hydrogen, iron, oxygen, silicone. Um, we don't have to dive too deep into that, but are there any uh, like facts or sure, things that are, are really interesting or uh, pretty compelling? To me, yeah. 
Uh, it's kind of like with the uh, different uh, constants of the universe. The list is kind of long, and to mention them all, is, it's almost it's almost not even necessary. Uh, but if there are at least 22 elements from a, just a very brief consideration. I am a chemistry professor, so this is something I think about a bit. Mm -hmm. There are at least 22 elements that I know that have a property that only that element has. And if that element didn't have that property, there'd be no life, which strongly argues that this is no coincidence. Yeah. In fact, one question you could ask is, why are there so many elements? I mean, the, 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 the atheists could say, well, protons, neutrons, all that stuff. All right, but you know that, that begs the question, why do those things exist? But anyway, uh, a few examples. Uh, for example, I teach organic chemistry, uh, which is essentially the chemistry of carbon. And uh, when I teach organic chemistry, I point out four or five properties that carbon has that no other element has. And every single one of those properties, if it wasn't carbon that had that property, then there'd be no life. If one element had one of those and another one had another of them, then there'd be no life. So, for example, uh, carbon is the only element that forms large molecules. It's literally the only one. Large, complex molecules with lots of different structure. Well, obviously, you need that for life to exist. Yeah. But it turns out the same element that allows you to form large molecules also just so happens to be this only element that forms molecules with four bonds. Well, silicon does as well. But silicon, uh, if you form molecules with two silicon atoms joined together, that molecule is unstable. It falls apart. So that wouldn't work. So anyway, uh, the reason the four bond thing is important is that if you don't have an atom with at least four bonds, then the molecules it forms can't be three-dimensional. And if the molecules aren't three-dimensional, then the living thing's not three-dimensional. And some other stuff that's required for life, such as optical activity and all that, uh, it wouldn't work. So the same element that has the right number of bonds also is the only element that forms large molecules. Two more examples. I could give so many more. Yeah. Uh, another one is iron. The, the cool thing about iron is it's got two unique properties. Uh, one unique property is that it's the only element that forms a strong magnetic field. And the reason that's essential is if the Earth did not have a, a magnetic field, then the cosmic, uh, the solar wind, if you will, these high-energy protons and electrons, that are emitted by the sun, they'd hit the earth and destroy all life on the surface of the earth. Destroy it all. Hmm. But the magnetic field of the earth acts like a force field, and it literally bends those particles around the earth. Now, a few of them come into the north and south pole, north and south magnetic pole, creating the aurora borealis, but most of them go all around the earth. So the, 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 the magnetism of the earth is essential to life, and only iron creates a strong magnetic field. But if iron were the only magnetic element but didn't have another property, which is it's the most stable element, then the fact that it was magnetic would be useless. So when I teach nuclear chemistry, I tell my students that if you look at the nuclei, the most stable nucleus is iron, which is why the Earth is made out of mostly iron. Right. <laughs> and it so it, it has to be that the most common element would be the magnetic element, which is exactly the case. Huh. 
And to argue that's just a, an accident it seems to be a, a rather silly wow, point. Uh, another one is uranium. And the special property of uranium is it's the only radioactive element with a sufficiently long half-life uh, because uh, uranium inside of the Earth releases heat, which is why the Earth is not cold all the way to the center. And if the Earth was cold all the way to the center, we wouldn't be here because plate tectonics is required to maintain an atmosphere. It's also required in order to like recycle the minerals in the Earth. Otherwise, any plant life on the surface would use up all the available minerals and within you know, a certain number of million of years, uh, complex life would also disappear. That's, wait, that's pretty incredible. Plate tectonics affects the atmosphere? Yeah, if you don't have plate tectonics, you don't have an atmosphere. That blows my mind. How, like, how, how did we, I can edit this out but later, but I just, for curiosity. Well, I mean, that... atoms naturally diffuse away from a planet. Uh, our, our atmosphere has almost no hydrogen in it. Now, scientists believe in the distant past there was a lot of hydrogen in our atmosphere, but because hydrogen is so light, it diffuses rapidly, so there's no hydrogen left. There's virtually no helium in our atmosphere. Again, because helium is so light. So over time, a planet just loses its atmosphere unless new gases are being created coming from within the planet, which is what's happening. But if you didn't have plate tectonics, if, if the Earth was just solidified, then it would lose its atmosphere within, you know, whatever. I don't know the numbers on that, 50 million, 100 million years. Uh, for example, funny. Mars has virtually no uranium, hardly any. And therefore, it has no plate tectonics, and it has virtually no atmosphere. Wow. I never learned that. that is so crazy. if we didn't have a radioactive element with sufficiently long half-life, and we only have one, life would not exist. Wow, and again, to say that this is all just accident or lucky or coincidence, it, it, it seems to me to be irrational. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like that element on top of this element yeah. on top of this... It's a very complex gravity, system. On top exactly. of water, all. And so all, I know, did you have one more that you wanted to, to mention? Or is that, was that all of them? Um, you know, I, I could go on. there's so many other elements. There's hydrogen. In fact, you even gave a list because you, you obviously read the book. Uh, but that, I think that's sufficient to make the case. Yeah. If, if you could believe uh, that those are just uh, just a great coincidence, thank you so much then if I add it to the list, it probably wouldn't change your opinion. So um, let's just, so if we had all this stuff, right, we have all this stuff working, um, and we have the earth. Um, Let me see if you got it. What was the two-word phrase that we're using to describe this coincident till nature about the earth? Oh, gosh. Uh, John. Um, Starts with an A, and it uses the Latin word for man. Anthro the anthropic anthropic principle. principle. Yeah. Pretty close. There you go. Anthropic. So the anthropic principle um, describes all all this stuff that we're talking right. about. Right. It 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 can be used to answer the question, the simple question of which is why. Yeah. There's all these why questions, and one answer, one principle answers all of them. So we have all this stuff, you know, allowing us to have life on earth and in the universe so with 
life, one of your chapters it talks about did life just happen? Right. There's another one. Before I do that, though, let me let me uh, just. Oh, wait. No, I'll do the life thing. Sorry about that. Uh, so uh, obviously, life exists. Yeah. Number one. Number two. Obviously, it hasn't always existed since the universe hasn't always existed. So life was created. Mm-hmm. Now, you could uh, say either it was created by a, just a natural process or by a supernatural process. Okay. All right. Uh, kind of not that completely different from the Big Bang model in the sense that you know, it just happened or there's an intelligence behind that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is, uh, living things have uh, just an incredible amount of information. Uh, uh, and living things have this information stored in the DNA. So the DNA is this uh, polymer of nucleotides. And a set of three nucleotides, such as adenine, guanine, thymine, whatever, a set of three nucleotides is coded information that chooses an amino acid uh, when living things are synthesizing proteins. So proteins are made out of amino acid, amino acid, amino acid, amino acid, amino acid. There's 20 of them. And this coded information in the DNA tells the cells what proteins to make so that something can be alive. Mm-hmm. Now, the amount of information contained in human DNA is around 3 billion of these uh, nucleotide-based pairs which would be the amount of information in, say, I don't know, a few, several hundred novels. Uh-huh. Now, uh, however, let's talk about the creation of life, the original kind of life. Clearly, humans came later. I mean, that's clear. So let's talk about uh, just the, the simplest life, like, say, an E. coli, a very, very simple bacteria. They have more like 100, of these, 100 million of these letters instead of 3 billion. Well, so what are the chances of this, these letters, which are literally a language that can be interpreted to create you know, the, the information to create a living thing, what are the chances that this would happen by accident? Well, then let's, let's back off 100 million. Let's say 25 million. Let's say 25 million of these nucleotide, A, G, C, all these things were to come together with information sufficient to create a living thing. The, the illustration I use to explain how unlikely that is, it'd be like taking a, a, a pile of 23, 25 million letters, throwing them in the air, and when they fall to the ground, you could read them. So they're, just, they're all on the ground there, and just start left to right, and you could read them, and it would make sense. Of course, that assumes that a language exists, right? Yeah. Well, how could you have a language if you don't have life? And let's talk about that genetic code. Because clearly the genetic code exists. So where did the code come from? Could molecules just randomly bumping into each other create a code? This is, you know, yeah, that makes no sense. So to me, um, that life was created uh, by some supernatural as opposed to natural process. Seems like a slam dunk. Now, again... What I just said, bear in mind, what I just said is not a scientific statement. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's trying to uh, impose a statement from outside of science. But the, there are two alternatives. It just happened by molecules bumping into each other accidentally, or 
some imposed order creating supernatural event because clearly uh, intelligence would be involved in creating life uh, by the way there's another thing uh, you probably remember this in the book which is just so happens the only thing in the universe that creates dna is proteins yeah and the only thing in the universe that makes proteins is dna and so um, it, it begs the question, all right, which came first? So was it the DNA that was just 100 million pieces of information just sort of self-assembled, there you go? Or was it the proteins that would have made the DNA? And here's what the atheist, or scientist for that matter, who's trying to propose just lucky accidental creation of life has to believe. They have to believe that simultaneously the DNA that would have made the protein came into existence and the protein that would have made the same DNA also came into existence. They sort of self-assembled separately and co coincidentally with matching information and then this life thing just sort of started being alive. Huh. So it's just it's exactly the same as the chicken and the egg. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Now, again, another of these ad hoc hypotheses sort of similar to the multiverse theory, is this RNA world theory. And uh, it just so happens a guy that I know, uh, Thomas Check, got the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovering Whoa. that certain kinds of RNA actually act as enzymes. And all other enzymes are proteins. So not Thomas Check, but others since him have proposed that maybe the first life was made out of RNA. So some of the RNA had the information, and some of the RNA did the sort of chemical reactions with the enzymes. But this doesn't work because the bottom line is RNA does not faithfully carry information from one, you know, say one to the next generation. DNA is awesome at faithfully recreating its information. DNA, RNA can do it, but in a very, very limited level and not efficient at all also rna it is true there's a thing called a, a ribozyme this is a, a few molecules that are actually rna that can catalyze certain reactions but the catalytic ability of 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 rna is very very limited and to, to propose that a living thing all of its functions could be caused by rna as an enzyme uh, this is not a tenable theory. So I would argue this this RNA world model, number one, has literally absolutely no evidence supporting it. And really, it's self-refuting. Hmm. So that's another one of these ad hoc hypotheses created, not because of evidence, but because atheists don't really like the implications of the facts. Yeah. And you also mentioned in your book that um, if a... Um, in order for an organism, you know, whether, uh, let's say, just things just randomly bumped into each other and created a living organism, there needed to be certain environmental factors that had to exist in order for it to survive. You mentioned some in your book, but do you, what are some of those factors? I know you mentioned a few things about the atmosphere had to be a certain way, and... Um, it had yes. to be able to learn certain things like to eat or... Well, all right. Um, 
I'm not sure exactly where you where you want me to head with that question, because you're kind of bringing in two things that are not all that related. Uh, but anyway, so let me do my best and see if yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't know. Yeah, I. I'm, uh, for I'm, example, uh, I probably mentioned in the book. You know, I haven't read it in about 20 years, so I'm not sure <laughs> what it is. I'm just kidding. It's been about 10 years, but uh, I, I I think I mentioned that uh, scientists believe the atmosphere early in the earth was significantly different than it is today because the bottom line is living things kind of like eat the atmosphere sort of all right and so the atmospheric conditions in the very early earth were very very different from what they are today for example there was no oxygen o2 in the early atmosphere of the earth there was little if any nitrogen n2 in the early atmosphere of the Earth. The early atmosphere of the Earth had a lot of water, a lot of methane, a fair amount of carbon dioxide, uh, a, a number of hydrogen-containing molecules. All right? And then, uh, so that probably is the environment within which the first life existed. And there's some reasons that scientists think they know that. I could explain some if you want. Now. I'm not sure what that really has to do with the question of how did, you know, whether life formed by a supernatural event or by random molecules bumping mm -hmm. into each other. But I would say this, the, the, the evidence is very strong that the chemical content of the early Earth's atmosphere was quite a bit different than it is today. Because today it's mostly nitrogen and oxygen. Back then, at least science believe, there was virtually no oxygen or nitrogen. Both of those were created through the activity of bacteria. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the theory of spontaneous generation? I know that in your book you mentioned some sort of experiment with Urey and Miller. All right, yeah, yeah. All right, so, and again, just like with the universe, right? There's two choices, created or not created, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, clearly life was created in the sense that it hasn't always existed. That's because the, the Earth certainly hasn't always existed. So then, so now that we know that life exists, uh, there's two possibilities. Either you have it being created by some intelligent creator, mm -hmm. I would say God, or the, the just um, random natural processes of molecules just sort of interacting, boom, out comes a living thing. That idea is called spontaneous generation. Uh, the idea of organic life coming from inorganic matter. It, now, spontaneous generation could not happen in the current Earth situation because the, the chemical environment required for life to become about spontaneously, which, by the way, I don't think it was, but going with their spontaneous mm -hmm. generation theory, uh, that if, if, if our atmosphere was like that now then the bacteria that are, exist would eat all that stuff. So um, life cannot be created spontaneously now because even if it was, it would instantaneously get eaten by something. And plus the molecules required to even create it would also be eaten. But nevertheless, the, these believers in spontaneous generation believe that, you know, whatever, two and a half, three billion years ago, it, you know, bump, 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 molecule, you know, the molecules keep getting bigger and more 
more complex over time, and, and then life happens. So basically, if you read these believers in spontaneous generation of life, they, they believe in this thing called chemical evolution. And that is just an absolute oxymoron. The idea of molecules gradually getting more and more complex over time and acquiring more and more information over time violates everything we know about thermodynamics. The people who believe in this, I have to ask myself, seriously, why, why do they actually believe in this? Here's why. Because the alternative is something that they don't really like to contemplate, which is that life was created. So like I mentioned in that book, maybe you remember it, is uh, there, there is no example of information being created through spontaneous processes. So these chemical evolution people propose that that happened a lot. Interesting. Through a natural process, which they don't know what that process would be. In fact, you know, they've tried to create models, and these models never work. They have to put information in. To get information out, they have to put information in. Mm -hmm. So what was, um, what did Uray and Miller find? All right, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's the thing is, uh, these atheists trot out Uray and Miller as if this is a significant discovery. Thank you. So back in the 50s, these are two scientists working right down the street here at UCSD. No, wait. Sorry. Uh, Miller is at UCSD. I don't know where he was. He was they were somewhere else because UCSD wasn't even founded until like 1960-something. Anyway, so what they did was they were trying to, to test whether uh, conditions in an early atmosphere could be right to create amino acids. Now, amino acids are these you know, 20, 30, 40 atom molecules that form the backbone of proteins. Now, what they did was they took a mixture of methane, uh, carbon dioxide, water, ammonia, and maybe some hydrogen, I can't remember, and they uh, had this pot of boiling water with these gases, and they put a spark in there, and eventually they got a very, very low concentration of some amino acids in the solution. And so they trot that out as evidence that life could have been created by spontaneous generation. Two problems with that. Number one, any organic chemist, and I am an organic chemist, any organic chemist would tell you if you mix those chemicals and light a spark, you get this stuff we call it goo or, or tar. And you'd have a certain small concentration of molecules with 20 or 30 atoms, including probably amino acids. But... Uh, what's that have to do with proposing that proteins could be created? Because it turns out the same heat that could make a few um, amino acid molecules would completely destroy any um, you know, protein molecule or, or nucleic acid molecule you know, as soon as they were created. It'd be kind of like this. Let's say you wanted to make a house of cards. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine you throw some energy at a big pile of, say, 10,000 cards. Now, in principle, that energy could create a house of cards. Yeah. But the instant that house of cards was created, it would also be destroyed by the same energy that created it. Okay. And that's an analogy of what I'm talking about here. So any model that could even conceivably create these...
building block molecules would destroy any sort of proto-almost living entity. Wow, that's very interesting. And that is... So wait, that is basically any model that we have? There is no model. There's no model. There's literally no model to explain. For spontaneous generation. Wow, okay. Scientists have tried to create some, but they always involve uh, putting information in. And even when they do that, they're only creating one of the molecules. Uh, and so, it, by the way, none of these are an experiment. It's just on a computer. <laughs> no experiment shows uh, making large chains of amino acids that have, you know, non-random chunks. All right, but they've tried to have computers generate uh, information uh, through, you know, certain models. And but the fact is. They have to put information in to get information out, mm. uh, and so, you know, so a lot of atheists so confidently declare, "Well, obviously, life was created by a spontaneous process," and I say, "Obvious according to what?" Mm. So, give me your theory here, <laughs> and th- I'm telling you, there literally is no theory. Wow. Dang. Well, looks like we hit pretty much everything on this list to talk about um was there any is there anything else you have in mind that you want to mention well there's lots of stuff but if the subject is uh this which is why would somebody who has a fairly broad knowledge of science uh how could they possibly not believe in god so because there's this idea in the circles that i run in which is hanging out with scientists there's this general assumption that seems to be out there, which is obviously no scientist would believe in God. Mm. And I'm like, excuse me? You know, how could a scientist not believe in God? So if, if that's the subject, which is why science seems to lead to only one reasonable conclusion, which is God exists, uh, I think we've discussed that sufficiently. Cool. We could uh, finish out by uh, reading Romans 1, uh, verse, I think it's 20. It says something like this, uh, that God's existence, his eternal power, his divine nature have been obvious from what is created so that men are without excuse. And I would say the scientist has the least possible basis for an excuse to not believe in God given the additional knowledge they have other than whatever else knows on like how awesome and how thoroughly designed life clearly is wow well i think that's a great podcast all right good cool um so should i stop it or just keep stop it um let's do another one no what we'll do is we will uh we'll keep this going i can just edit some of this stuff but i want to have um Maybe you just share a little bit about your background. Like, okay. Um, so we can pause, and then I'll ask you, you know, share a little bit about your background. Yeah, why don't, why don't, we, why don't you, rather than me just talking the whole time, which will be boring, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you maybe anticipate a few questions yeah. that I throw out there? Like, uh, maybe, like, tell me about your education. Tell me about, uh, you know, your sort of religious background. and you know. Yeah, yes? yeah, yeah. Okay? Cool. All right, great. So take 
three or part something. two. <laughs> okay. So, uh, John, just for our listeners, um, what is? Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about your background um, with your education. W- what kind of background do you have as far as um, as far as your education? Um, I know that you're a PhD, but what? In well, what? I mean, it's pretty straightforward, I guess. Um, I went to the University of Connecticut. Uh, I was a, a chemistry and math major there. Uh, got my bachelor's degree in chemistry. Um, and I s- fulfilled all the requirements for a chemistry and a math major. Um, by the way, just so you know, uh, when I started college, I did not believe in God in any way whatsoever. I cl- called myself an atheist. Uh, but during my undergraduate studies, partly uh, my study of science, by the time I graduated from college, I was kind of already on this search for what is the truth because I'd already been convinced that there was a God. So anyway, and then, uh, you know, I, I worked for a year as a chemist uh, in Connecticut. I was uh, I worked for Clairol as a kind of a bench chemist. But all along, I, I wanted to do advanced studies. So uh, I thought about medical school, but then I decided, no, I... I I'd really rather be a scientist, so I ended up um, going to graduate school. Um, my philosophy, is, is, as far as school, has always been I like to do the hard thing rather than the easy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just me. That's my personality, I guess. So I went to the University of Colorado, and I picked the hardest major I could possibly have picked. So um, I picked a program which is called Chemical Physics, which is essentially, it's not two PhDs, it's a dual PhD where uh, basically the physics department gives you a PhD and the chemistry department gives you a PhD. You take the um, comprehensive exam in physics, you take the comprehensive exam in chemistry. So that, uh, that was a pretty tough uh, road to hoe for me, uh, especially the physics part because I only had mm, like freshman physics before I got to graduate school. So that first year was kind of touch and go. Wow. Anyway, I became a Christian during that first year in graduate school. And like I said, it took me six years, a little bit longer than average to get my PhD. Uh, that's the extent of my formal education. Uh, and I, at that point, I was, I'd been a Christian for almost six years. Yeah, how did you, what was your process? Like, could you go into a little bit of that? Like, what was your process of how, how did you go from being an atheist to becoming later a Christian. All right. Yeah, sure. So anyway, I was, you know, my parents could hear this podcast and think, gee, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's not a very fair description here. Because the bottom line is they did raise me in a kind of a church situation. Uh, It was the Episcopalian Church, which is a fairly liberal denomination there. Uh, my, My dad was a fairly strong believer at that time in her life. I think my mother was really mostly just tradition. But anyway, so I was, you know, I was the acolyte carrying the cross around. And I was in the youth group. I was even president of the youth group. But honestly, I didn't believe in God. I, I didn't, I wasn't against God, but I didn't really believe in God. Mm-hmm. And then and I went to college and maybe I was just being rebellious, but I decided I was an atheist. And this is only a couple year phase, I guess you call it that. So, um, so I remember my freshman year taking philosophy, and I was, we studied Nietzsche, and I thought Nietzsche was pretty awesome. And, you know, he said God is dead, and, yeah, and I agree with that. But then 
uh, by the end of my sophomore year, I really, my perspective began to change pretty radically. Um, the bottom line is I came to believe that there is definitely a God, uh, that there is some supernatural uh, first cause of the universe. Uh, I came to that conclusion partly because of the chemistry I was studying. is like, you know, even some of the things I said tonight, you know, kind of, I started to notice those things like, come on, seriously, there has to be a creator. But to be honest with you, <laughs> I also had some, I guess, experiences, if you want to call it that, um, uh, the kind of like religious experiences related to uh, my lifestyle at the time, which was kind of a simple lifestyle. Either way, I, I decided, man, there is definitely a God. So, to me, logically, then I need to ask myself, well, then which God? You know, which mm -hmm. idea? So, I kind of did a worldview search thing in my life. I, my, my first, the first place I landed was kind of like Hinduism. Hmm. The whole, you know, I am God, you are God, the universe is God, uh, mysticism, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so I was, I became involved in like a sort of a Hinduism kind of group. I was interested in, you know, reading the Vedas and, and I did chanting kind of a, mantra thing and and i became a vegetarian anyway I, that was but on the other hand i was fairly committed to my search honestly compared to what i was before which is a pot smoking you know mm -hmm. whatever totally worldly person i mean people thought i was kind of crazy really i mean i gave up all this party and all this stuff even though that's all my friends were yeah so i was pretty committed to this search if you will Sounds kind of trite, but that's what it was. But then, when uh, so I had a year after school, so now it's been about two, three years, and then I went off to graduate school, and then I was exposed to the Bible. Not that I'd never read anything in it before, but I'd never taken it seriously. Uh, I was exposed to it through a, um, a student. It was one of my students in class. His name was Scott Cunningham. He invited me to this church. I showed up at the church and I thought, wow, this is interesting. This people are living a lifestyle that sort of matches the concept that I formed in my mind of what the truth should have to look like. Now, that's not proof of anything, but it definitely said, man, I'm going to read the Bible. Hmm. And then as I began to read the Bible, I was reading the book of John, I'm reading Acts, I'm reading Romans, and like, wow. And it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, like a train coming down the track. This is inspired. This is the truth. This is, this is you know, God. I, I felt like I found the truth. Okay. So I was one of the easier Christian conversions you'd ever come across, actually. Because the, the idea of, of repentance, I kind of sort of, in my own weird way, had sort of repented in a yeah. way, not in a Christian way, and I was pretty committed. So to me, if it's true, then I just do it. So I was said, well, you need to be a disciple. Right. Great, yeah, let's do it. I mean, obviously, you need to repent of your sins. Yeah. So I was a relatively easy conversion, like a three-week process. That was over 39 years ago. Wow. And so I haven't looked back. I, I'm not one of those believers who kind of goes through these periods where they, they practically turn back. No, I've 
you know, I made my decision. And honestly, I've never even come close to even possibly considering uh, uh, backing off on my Christian commitment. Wow. That's pretty incredible. So you're, what were you teaching at the time that your student reached out to you? Yeah, I was, it's a chemistry class. Wow. I must have been, I, I'm just thinking being in that guy's shoes. And oh, yeah, it's kind of funny. Scott told me later on, he, he said he thought I was like a Buddhist or something like that, which yeah. was actually a pretty good guess. Did you dress a certain way for him? to? I dressed like, you know, just a, so whatever. Yeah. Um, and he was nervous. I mean, I could tell he was really nervous. Yeah. He was so nervous. He meant to invite me to church. It turns out they had this thing called a student supper. So all the ladies in the church would uh, have the, the, there's lots of college kids. They feed them a dinner and then there'd be an evening service. He didn't mention the service. He just mentioned the student supper. Oh, really? No, you know, I knew what it was, but, you know, so that's kind of humorous. Wow. Anyway, so I was fairly early on as a Christian. I kind of developed the, the uh, this is the science Christian guy. So I was asked to answer questions and about science things and biblical things because the church I was in there in Boulder, it was a lot of really young people. Mm -hmm. So um, I became kind of a sort of in a way a, a Bible answer guy pretty early on, like even as a Christian, only two or three years. Then I, um, I went to a, an event uh, by a very good friend of mine. His name is John Clayton, and he did a, a Christian apologetics program in Boulder when I was a, a young Christian. And I just, that was it, man. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And here it is almost 39 years later, and John and I are still good friends. Wow. He's like a model or a hero to me. Um, tell us a little bit about how you, because you started Evidence for Christianity org. Um, how did that come about and what has been your experience? All right. With that? Yeah. The person who deserves the principal credit for that is not me. It's my friend Foster Stanback. Uh -huh. He's a guy I've known since over 35 years ago. I met him. He's a freshman at college. He was this uh, sort of <laughs> from Tennessee, I think, kind of like this Appalachian kind of good old boy guy mm. with a southern accent. And uh, anyway, he it turns out he, he he's somewhat wealthy. He's, he's inherited some money from his father. So he's had the ability to kind of pursue what he's interested in. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of interest in Christian evidences, Christian apologetics. It was his idea to start a website uh, almost 20 years ago. And he got a bunch of people, this little board and all this sort of stuff, and uh, friends of his that were a PhD science people, and I was one on the list. But then when he tried to initiate it, all these other people, they, you know, they said they were interested, but they didn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, got the uh, URL, and, and he spent a few bucks, and he got this website started. And then I took it over almost as soon as it was started. And that was, man, that was 18 years ago, 17 years ago. And so it's been built a lot. I mean, we have over 3,000 articles there. And what can people find? Like, what, what can people do on the website? People are listening. Well, um, there's over 2,000 questions that have been answered. That's well over half the total articles. Uh, there are, I don't know, 500 different audio 
lessons recorded there, probably more, I don't know. There are probably three or 400 PowerPoint presentations. Uh, then there's another maybe four or 500 straight up articles, none of the above. Mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah. And maybe 10% of those are things that I got from somebody else and uploaded. But probably, you know, 80, 90% of those are articles that I wrote. Wow. Awesome. So there is a ton of stuff there. I mean, <laughs> it, oh, well over 3,000 articles. There aren't, honestly, there's not a whole lot of websites that over, have over 3,000 articles yeah, on them. That's why, that's why I get a fair amount of traffic there. Yeah. Cool. And the traffic is, um, it's a mixture of, of unbelievers. I would guess the unbelievers are, it used to be, it might have been 10 or 20%, mm -hmm. but I've, it's called evidence for Christianity, but over time I've put more biblical stuff on there, so it's not, it's not all Christian evidences, it's maybe two-thirds Christian evidences and one-third other. Yeah. And so over time I would say the number of just straight up unbelievers that come to the site is, you know, five or 10%, something like that. Oh, really? Whereas it used to be maybe as much as 20%. So I don't get quite as many questions from just total unbelievers as I used to. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, I would say, you know, a, a, a fairly large majority of the questions I get are from people who maybe are believers but they're having doubts or uh, believers who've heard things that they're, they, that they're disturbed by and they're asking, what should I do about that mm -hmm. but I, I get the occasional hindu or buddhist or muslim or mormon or whatever you know who take you know offense to something that i posted and uh say why they don't agree or, or they're just asking a question yeah cool cool well i think we are good for tonight Great. That was a fair amount of time there. That was. So we, we ought to reward ourselves with some cake. Yeah.